This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Passive Aggression. Are you looking for a responsible and communicative way to address conflict? Try Passive Aggression today. Remember about a year ago when we talked about PFAS? And remember when I called it a forever chemical? Well, apparently that meant nothing and 50% of chemicals end in divorce. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Ethan Brown and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, and it is a class of over 9,000 chemicals that are used in products such as nonstick cookware, water-repellent clothing, stain-resistant fabrics and carpets, some cosmetics, and some firefighting foams. Among other qualities, PFAS are non-stick, stain-resistant, and repel water, oil, and grease, which is why we use them as much as we do. According to the British engineering and consulting firm Wood, sales of fluoropolymers in their basic form is a $2 billion industry, so it's certainly not a chemical without benefit. Unfortunately, PFAS has been linked to a long list of health problems, such as testicular, kidney, liver, and pancreatic cancer, reproductive issues, low birth weights, endocrine disruption, increased cholesterol, weakened childhood immunity, and more. With all those side effects, you'd think PFAS was an FDA-approved medication. What makes a PFAS a PFAS is a chain of carbon and fluorine atoms. Now, when fluorine and carbon link up, fluorine yanks a bunch of electrons off of the carbon atoms, and in doing so, creates a really strong bond. Some refer to the carbon-fluorine bond as the strongest bond in all of organic chemistry. They're the power couple of the chemical world, as it were. But their relationship is super toxic, at least for those of us who have to be around them. Seriously, it's non-stop PDA. And by PDA, of course, I mean perpetually developing ailments. That carbon-fluorine bond is why PFAS are called forever chemicals. When we put them in our environment, they stay there. They have made their way into our water, our food, and our blood. A perspective article in Environmental Science and Technology this year identified PFAS in the rainwater of Antarctica. It is truly everywhere, except at IHOP at 7pm on a Friday. 
Seriously, why are they open then? It's seven hours after the breakfast crowd left, seven hours until the folks from the bars start stumbling in, and all that's left is a group of rowdy 13-year-olds who wanted some pancakes before hitting the bowling alley. I mean, even PFAS wants no part of that. And based on the aforementioned health impacts of these chemicals, a 2021 paper in Environmental Science and Technology put the economic cost of PFAS in the United States at $37 to $59 billion per year, a cost borne out by ordinary people, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. That's a whole lot more than PFAS's $2 billion of economic benefit. But if PFAS is everywhere, forever, what are we supposed to do? Well, enter Northwestern's Dr. Brittany Trang and Dr. William Dickdell, among others, who published a paper in Science on August 18th, where they found that an industrial solvent called dimethyl sulfoxide can actually break down some types of PFAS. Okay, homewrecker, but can it break up my crush and her obsession with Nathan Fielder? Interestingly, dimethyl sulfoxide, or DMSO, is a really common solvent. It's actually a byproduct of wood. It's been around since the mid-1800s, kind of like the Queen and Paul Rudd, I'm guessing. And not that you'd have a need to, but you can order a bottle on Google for like 20 bucks. Now, it can be harmful to people in excess quantities. In all fairness, it is less toxic than ethanol, it's not something to be afraid of, but it can cause skin irritation, upset stomach, and even give off a strong garlic smell. And I'm sorry, PFAS live forever and the only way to kill them is with something that has a garlic smell? I know what you are. Say it. Out loud. Say it. Polyfloral... Pol... Polyfloral al... Polyfloral... Polyfloral Polyfloral... Come on, it was right there. If these PFAS bonds are so unbreakable, though, how does DMSO kill vampires? Sorry, PFAS. I keep getting those mixed up. Specifically, this paper looked at a subset of PFAS called perfluorocarboxylic acids. I know, disgusting word, but this gets fun. Hang in there. Now, one of the most common PFAS chemicals is called PFOA, and PFOA is a type of perfluorocarboxylic acid. Since it's so prevalent in the environment, we're going to use PFOA as our example. So let's talk about the chemical structure of PFOA. PFOA has a head and a tail. So imagine it as a tadpole or a, never mind, just a tadpole. The tail is the perfluoro part and it contains eight carbon atoms in a line. Attached to the back carbon atom are three fluorine atoms. Let's name them Timmy, Jimmy, and Bill. Bill seems like he's got quite the attitude. Attached to each of the middle six carbon atoms are two fluorine atoms. 
And they don't get names, I don't like them. And that means we've got a lot of these carbon-fluorine bonds that we were talking about earlier. These are one of the strongest bonds in organic chemistry. They're like the Three Stooges, really annoying and not something we want to find in our drinking water. So that's the tale, all carbon and fluorine. Now if we go to the head, there's that last carbon atom in the front. That carbon atom is part of a carboxylic acid. It has two oxygen atoms poking off its head, sort of like antlers. And then one of the oxygen atoms has a hydrogen connected to it. So to sum up, the head is the carboxylic acid, and the tail is a whole bunch of those strong carbon-fluorine bonds. Now, enter our trusty solvent, DMSO. If you create a mixture of water and DMSO, heat it up, and put in this chemical, PFOA, here's what happens, according to this new research. The DMSO breaks the bond between the head and the tail. And when that bond breaks, the carbon-fluorine bonds suddenly weaken and ultimately get broken apart. The fluorine starts telling the carbon things, like your mom is so annoying, or you look fat in those jeans or something. The chemicals in DMSO then quickly react with the broken down PFOA chemicals, and what you're left with is a perfectly safe solution of water and some chemical byproducts. I probably wouldn't chug it, but it seemed from what I read on the subject like you could probably even pour it down a drain and be fine. So PFOS crisis solved, right? We're done? We found a... solution? Well, that's where this gets tricky. First off, this method doesn't work on everything. It works on these perfluorocarboxylic acids, such as PFOA and a newer chemical called Gen X, which is becoming more common, unlike the actual Gen X, which has been fading into obscurity literally since the birth of millennials. Actually, that's not fair. Gen X is responsible for great cultural contributions, like, um, um, Milli Vanilli. Does that count? Anyway, it works on PFOA and Gen X and some others, but there are other very common PFOS chemicals that DMSO doesn't work on, so that nuance is certainly important. Second, this method would have to be scaled up big time, and while it does bode well that it requires very simple and easy-to-obtain ingredients, DMSO and water, there are always challenges to scaling something like this up not to mention the fact that we need it for vampires. And third, to kill PFAS with DMSO, you first have to get the PFAS out of the environment. You can't just have your kid chug DMSO, boil him, and then say he doesn't have PFAS in his body anymore. The bad news here is that we likely can't get all the PFAS out of the environment. They're all the way in Antarctica, for goodness sake. But we can make a dent. We have filters that can get PFAS out of our drinking water, and that's awesome. 
Before this paper, the question was, where do you put the PFAS that you filter out? Do you put it in a landfill? Then you run the risk of it leaking. And like I discussed in the PFAS episode, extreme weather and natural disasters exacerbated by climate change can actually increase these hazardous waste sites' vulnerability to a leak. But if we can actually collect the PFAS and break it down, then we're talking. We're not solving the entire PFAS crisis, but we're making progress. And that's an exciting prospect. What stood out to me most about this new research, though, besides the early excitement of having a new tool in the toolbox for fighting PFAS, is that the solution was really right in front of us. This is a very common industrial solvent we're talking about. I asked a friend of mine who studies chemistry to take a look at this paper, and his response was, oh my god, the solution is so simple. I'm on the outside looking in, I'm no Walter White, but it seemed to me like a bit of a scientific brain fart, right? Like, duh, why didn't we think of this? And I get why that could be seen as a failure but I'd prefer to look at it from a different angle. Scientists are people too. Even if they take home lab samples and genetically modify themselves to be an evolutionarily superior creature that's part man, part scorpion, part eagle, part rat, they only have so much time in the day to do their jobs, and there's a plethora of questions to answer, like what aspects of a rat would contribute to an evolutionarily superior creature. But this all means Every single one of us, if we want to work hard and study science, can be the next one to make a discovery. Not me, probably not Nathan Fielder, but some people. Especially if you work as diligently as Dr. Trang and her team. And it can be as simple as pulling a solvent off the shelf that no one else thought to try. Dr. Trang told the New York Times I didn't want to try it initially because I thought it was too simple. But to her immense credit, she did. And the more perspectives we have, the more likely we are to make even more of these life-saving discoveries. So as we figure out next steps here, let's be excited about the win, and let's also take some inspiration from it. Aside from filling an IHOP at 7 p.m. on a Friday, we can find solutions to any issue we set our mind to. Do you need to clearly communicate something to someone? Then passive aggression is for you. With its casual tone but scathing content, this way of figuring out your problems is absolutely the way to go. And if you care about the environment, passive aggression has your back too. Try lines like, do you really need that straw? Or, I'm vegan, are you? And watch everyone around you immediately become eco-warriors. Passive aggression, it's sleight of hand but for speaking. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon email or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Today's Ask Me Anything comes from Billy Sikaski. Billy asks, who took carbon dioxide measurements during the Ice Age? Thanks for the question, Billy. I actually really like this one. If we are talking about physically taking measurements during the Ice Age, that didn't happen. The first reading of atmospheric carbon concentrations from Mauna Loa is from 1958. Then the air contained 319 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Today we're up to around 420. Nice. But we do know with incredible levels of precision what the concentrations of carbon dioxide were in the atmosphere back then. This really is turning out to be a chemistry is cool episode. Maybe my high school chemistry teacher can retroactively change my grade. And there's a few ways scientists, or paleoclimatologists to be more specific, figure this out. And I'll give you three interesting ones. First, ice cores. Each year, as snow accumulates on Antarctica and Greenland, it traps little bubbles of air. These air bubbles stay there forever and give us these samples of what the atmosphere was like at the time that the snow fell. So what paleoclimatologists do is they go to Greenland or Antarctica, drill into the ice, and extract a very long cylinder called an ice core. They then take this ice core back to the lab and analyze those little air bubbles. Based on the depth of the core, they can figure out when the air bubble got there, and based on the levels of carbon in the air bubble, they can get their measurement. Ice cores are used to figure out a whole lot more interesting stuff than carbon, but that's one pretty cool thing we can do with them. If you want to learn more about that, we talked to Dr. Peter Neff in our episode on ice shelves about his work with ice cores, so go check out that episode. Second, deep sea sediment cores. So in our episode on ice sheets, we talked about how many shellfish form their shells using calcium carbonate. And when there is more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, a certain amount of that gets sucked into the ocean, and the carbon dioxide starts reacting with the carbonate ions, leaving fewer to react with calcium and create that calcium carbonate. That means shellfish can struggle to form their shells, creating a bunch of problems. Now, the exact science is a little over my head. If you all want to learn more, let me know, and I'll actually sit down and ask experts questions and take time to figure it out. But the very basic premise is that if you drill one of these cores in the deep sea, similar to how they do on Antarctica and Greenland, 
you'll find a whole bunch of fossils from marine species from a long, long time ago. In analyzing these fossils, you can figure out what their chemical composition is, what the pH of the ocean water would have been, and from there, what atmospheric carbon dioxide levels would have been. Again, I apologize if any paleoclimatologists are listening and that was a gross oversimplification, but hopefully that gives you a sense of how these deep sea sediment cores can be useful. And third, scientists can use stalactites and stalagmites, those pointy things in caves. I actually didn't know this one before today, so let's quickly go over how stalactites and stalagmites are formed. When rainwater gets into the cracks of a rock, it picks up carbon dioxide, forms carbonic acid, and becomes more acidic. The acid is then able to pass through the cracks and over a long, long period of time, start to form a cave. And now, as water starts to get into the cave, it is exposed to the air in the cave and releases the carbon dioxide back out. Sort of like what happens when you open a bottle of soda. The only difference is that this rainwater also contains dissolved rock. And so when it releases the carbon dioxide, it also releases the rock onto the cave walls, ceilings, and floors. After this happens enough times, it can form a stalactite or stalagmite. Given this process, you can imagine that if there's higher levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the process gets sped up. So we can look at the shape and composition of these stalactites and stalagmites and get information about the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at the time that they were formed. Again, disgusting oversimplification. I am not a paleoclimatologist, but I'm happy to learn more about this one too if you have questions. I found it really cool. I wish I remembered who it was, but I saw a scientist recently saying that sometimes she'll see comments on social media from folks saying things like, the climate changed millions of years ago, why does it matter today? And my personal response to that has always been, yes, absolutely, that's true. And the difference is that today's is happening at a significantly faster rate than before. And we can conclusively say that it's due to our human carbon emissions. We know carbon dioxide absorbs infrared radiation from the sun, and that that warms the planet, and we know how much carbon dioxide we've emitted, so it's pretty easy to do that math. But her response to the climate has always changed comment really cracked me up. She essentially said, yeah, it has. And who do you think figured that out? That's right. Scientists figured that out. And it's actually really impressive how reliably they figured that out. So paleoclimatology is always worth bringing up. Even at a cocktail party, it's a great conversation starter. Try it. But just keep in mind that the people who figured out the climate change millions of years ago are the same people as the ones telling you now that the climate is changing today and that we need to take it seriously. 
And with that, thank you so much for the question, Billy. Feel free to follow up on this one if you have more questions on these specific methods or other paleoclimatology stuff. I really just scratched the surface there. And thanks to all of you who listened to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on avocados. Thank you.